Hey folks, it's Yannick Guzdala. It's the Yannick Guzdala podcast in serious deep radio voice mode here. Um, it is, what is it, December 27th, just getting through the holidays, and the whole family has been uh, has been dealing with COVID for a week, which was not a lot of fun, and I'm still... I'm still under the weather, but wanted to, uh, sort of desperately wanted to get back to it, get back to talking to you cats and to the podcast and, and all the rest of it. So here I am going to see how far I get and we're going to talk about, um, I'm going to talk about my five bucket list gigs. I was thinking about this the other day, like made a pretty conscious effort to start saying no way more often back in, uh, 2000 end of 2010 2011 when i was getting off the road really long uh year-long tour hundreds of shows radio shows all kinds of stuff in one year was totally insane and kind of made a, a decision then that was like you know what the money isn't that great um i was sort of hitting that balance point of well it's been an amazing run of a decade or so of doing pop gigs and r&b gigs and just commercial gigs as a sideman as a freelance musician and it, I was no longer 22 anymore and having those, you know, first experiences, it wasn't, it didn't have the same kind of, same kind of shine to it where you could sort of let the money sort of fall by the wayside and not be so concerned about, about various really kind of important things. So anyway, long story long, 2010, 2011 made a really conscious decision to start saying no way more of the time to sideman gigs. And, uh, I was thinking about that the other day and I was thinking, I, I started, even back then I started to develop a list of like, okay, I'm saying no to all of this stuff. Like your regular, you know, new, newly signed artists, go do an opening act slot on an arena tour or something, pretty terrible money, that, that kind of thing. That's, uh, it's going to sound kind of facetious to say that's easy to say no to, but let's say at that point in my career i'd done enough of it to where it had gotten easier to say no to and um i had other sources of income the space studio was just starting up around then and i was playing gigs with my own band which were uh ironically instrumental jazz was way more lucrative uh gig for gig than most of those sideman pop gigs um unfortunately i couldn't do the volume of shows that i wanted to do to really make a fortune but <coughs> they were uh they were definitely more fun and more rewarding so but but again even back then i started to make a bit of a list like oh you know what if the phone did ring like who would i say yes to like who is who are the artists that i really respect or the music that i really love and who would it would it would just be a no-brainer wouldn't even think about it the answer would just be yes no matter what it was and there were really obvious ones back then you know and we're, we're gonna this this list has five current ones i had to go with five people who are living because i want those bucket list gigs to be uh to be gigs that are actually still technically possible some of them are very possible uh some of them are i don't know i don't know i would never say never but Pretty much, I know in the back of my mind they're never going to happen. Um, so it's a mixture, and it's not all jazz. It's a mixture of songwriters and jazz musicians. But there are, like, there are the past bucket lists. There are the people that are no longer with us. So the first person that springs to mind when I think back, you know, even, yeah, 10, 12, 13 years ago when I started saying, okay, I'm going to back off the Sideman thing, like Jeff Beck would have been an immediate yes. Um, 
you know, of course, Chick Corea, Joe Zhao and all, uh, Keith Jarrett. I mean, things that would probably never, ever have happened, happened especially being an electric bass player. Um, you know, the Chick Corea electric band would have been awesome. Um, Steps Ahead would or would, would have just have been incredible because that was one of the main reasons I moved to the US uh, after I heard Live in Tokyo 1986 with Steve Smith and Mike Stern and Mike Brecker, Mike Manieri and Dow Jones. So that was huge. And I, there's, a, there's a minor, tiny, minor chance that we might be able to get Mike Manieri out of retirement to play a couple of shows, but it wouldn't really be steps ahead and it wouldn't be you know the big kind of touring thing that that would have been amazing 20 30 40 years ago that i kind of idolized um another couple of things would have been paul simon i was just always a massive fan of i'd but that had been a big part of my you know my mum used to play that music all the time i'd grown up listening to that and there, there was one of those moments where or one of those artists where i'd grown up listening to it and all the way back from like Simon and Garfunkel through probably Rhythm of the Saints or I forget which albums would have been coming out late 80s, early 90s. You know, obviously there was a cutoff point and then I kind of went away from it and came back to it later. But I had no idea of all the people that worked with Simon and Garfunkel when I was a little kid, when I was seven, eight years old listening to that music. I had no idea that there was, you know, Steve Gadd and Anthony Jackson and, and all these incredible musicians, Michael Brecker and uh, just all those incredible studio musicians in New York that, that played on a lot of those records. So it was great. It's similar with Joni as well, with Joni Mitchell. That was something my mum played all the time. And I had no idea about who Jacob Astorius was and the association of all those incredible musicians and the Herbie Hancock and Wayne Shorter and Peter, Peter Erskine. And all those cats played on a lot of those records. Don Elias, Mike Brecker, you know, Matheny, uh, Lyle Mays, just a crazy cast of people. I didn't, I didn't come to that realization of the jazz sideman thing or, or even the hero studio sideman thing like Steve Gadd and Anthony Jackson until much, much later. But I had listened to a lot of that as a kid. So it was nice to have sort of a, I, for it to all to come sort of full circle and for me to discover what I'd actually been listening to back then and, you know, then idolize it from a musician standpoint. And so that would have been absolutely a, a yes, uh, an absolute no-brainer yes. But even though Paul Simon is, is still with us, still alive, I believe he's fully retired now. So the chance of that happening is has uh, just gone is it it has expired as far as i know um so before we get to the five uh like i said there are these kind of layers of the bucket list because it's changed so much over the years um huge albums the albums that were massive for me i just did a could i play bass with video um chick career electric band two paint the world the tune is ritual uh you can go check it out on the main channel. I posted it very recently. That band would have been incredible. Jimmy Earl has always been one of my favorite bass players. Had a, He and that music and that band had a massive influence on me. Um, so that would have been incredible. Like the, the post-Weckle Gambali uh, electric band era would have been fun to be a part of. That would have been a total no-brainer. Um, I don't play upright, so I could have never done this gig, but Time Warp is one of my favorite Chick Corea quartet records with Bob Burr, Gary Novak, and John Patitucci. That had a massive impact on me as well. Um, and then I got to look at things like the Brecker Brothers. You know, I came way too late for that. Brecker Brothers were, as a band, were 
already way done by the time I got to New York. Although the kind of second layer to this, and that, that list could go on, like there are plenty of people that are no longer with us um, or that no longer play music. But I would have loved to have played with it. would have definitely been on my, on my bucket list. But um, to take another layer, um, I have been fortunate enough to play with a bunch of people that I wanted to. So there's kind of the bucket list gigs that I've already done. I would say that would be the second layer, um, which would obviously be Mike Stern, one of my earliest, biggest influences, um, and just somebody responsible from afar initially, just from the records, with motivating me to play the music I play now and write, to write the way I do, and then to get to play with him on and off for 15 years or so was, was huge. Um, and through Mike, I met a bunch of other people, you know, and, and, and you know, other gigs I did around that time moving to New York, like with Hiram Bullock, that was huge. He was such a massive part of that, like Don Gronick scene with Will Lee and Steve Jordan and, and all of those cats. Like when you listen to the Hearts and Numbers album, Don Gronick, Hearts and Numbers, that's Hiram on there. So I was very aware of Hiram Bullock, even though he's not like the Matheny, Schofield, Stern, Frizzell sort of household shredder guitar player name. <coughs> he was a massive influence on me and you know especially from Jacko and the Jacko trio with Kenwood and getting to play with those guys so that was that was a, an amazing early bucket list gig to do like I was fresh off of watching the Jacko Pistorius Modern Electric Bass VHS so much as a kid and then a couple of years later to come to Berkeley meet Kenwood and then meet Hiram Bullock and to be playing in that trio like Jacko's last band was that was insane so yeah i would say stern hiram of course randy brecker and to get to play the music of the brecker brothers and to do a few brecker brothers reunion band gigs um with the likes of uh ronnie holmes and george witty and dennis chambers and uh i am gonna forget so many people here but like the original founding members of the brecker brothers and to do some gigs with those guys amazing over the years um I didn't know Jojo Mayer and Nerve before I moved to New York, but that was like a big slap in the face once I heard that music. I was like, oh, damn, there's this whole other lane. And I immediately... I was lucky in the sense that I wasn't sort of on the outside looking in and I got to meet Jojo early on and start playing with him and jamming with him in my basement. I had a little basement studio in the city. And um, so I got to be kind of on the inside right away with that scene. And I play with him pretty soon, like within eight months or something after I moved to New York. And I played in Nerve on and off over the years and toured and recorded with them. So that, that you know, had, had I known about that ahead of time, it would absolutely have been a bucket list gig. Um, but as it was, it was something I just sort of, it was integrated into the scene of just by moving to New York and hanging out with those cats. So very happy to have done that and of course i was a massive vital information fan just the whole time you know <clears throat> the original steve smith and tom costa gambali you know tim landers jeff andrews all those people who played in that band was were, were huge for me um so to be in vital information now to actually be a band member and to get to play with steve um and, and manuel of course as well it's a it's a fantastic trio but in terms of the 
the legacy and the history of what I of who I listen to, especially as Steve is on that live in Tokyo, um, steps ahead, nineteen eighty six. So Steve has played a massive role in my sort of musical upbringing and education. Again, from afar, from the records initially, and then here we are. I'm playing in Steve's band. It's one of the great. Uh, great honors of my career um and that that's a, a really a, a huge bucket list thing that i've been able to check off and and continue to do it's not like oh i'll do this and okay great i've done that and move on it's like very very fun to be to be a, actually a band member you know and and to get to play enough shows i think it's volume of shows and recording sessions and just being around each other where you get to develop a camaraderie of course and a rapport and we're all very good friends and we have a text thread going and we you know we have our jokes and we shoot the shit and and all the rest of it but it's so important to play a a decent volume of shows where we get to develop that music and i i get to be some small part of uh of the vital information sound whatever that is we're, we're creating right now so that's a huge honor and we already put out one record last year and and toured a bunch and we're going to be finishing up a, another album this year so by the time or rather in 2024 a little ahead of myself there so within the space of a couple of years i'll not only have joined the band but been able to play on a couple of records and play a bunch of shows all over the place and um yeah, it's like I said, I could go on about it for the entire podcast, talking about all the ins and outs. Maybe that's another one. I should do a better sit-down interview with Steve where we talk about maybe something a little more specific than our really cool but quite rushed interview from last year on the road. Um, so, yeah, those those are kind of the ones that I've done already. Um, um, before I forget, uh, it's the end of 2023, we are having the last hurrah in the store. So I'm going to bother you for 15 seconds and tell you that um, there are a bunch of discounts on all the ebooks, all the bundles, and all of the base courses and HX Stomp presets in my store right now at yanagusdollar.com forward slash store. All the discounts are automatic. They're added at checkout. And I just restocked. I'm looking here at Pentatonics and Iconic Lines. We, we sold out of a ton of the physical books that I'm now selling from here, from home, that I'm signing and sending all over the world. So we actually have some a ton of books in stock right now. Uh, that just happened. I, I got a massive shipment today. So physical books shipping from the website, all at yanagwizdala.com. And so... I want to get to the five, like, living, breathing, gigging, uh, bad mother, bad mama jamma artists that I, I really dig and that are on my current bucket list. It's so hard to do only five. Like, Michelle and Degacello should be on there. She's not. Like, there, there are a bunch of people who I really idolize that are still around making music. So it was tough to come up with five, especially as I knew I was going to talk about other areas as well. So we're already talking about 20, 30 different artists as it is. And there's one, we'll, we'll get to the five in just a second. There's just one thing I think, that I think about when it comes to my career and things that I've done and I would like to do more of. Uh, things that I haven't done and that I would still like to experience. 
excuse me, one thing COVID seems to be doing now is wrecking the vocal cords. Um, so before we get to the main five, I want to talk about, let's call them experiences. And I've written notes here. I'm reading, actually reading out my notes here in the phone. Let's talk about experiences. So these are people that maybe I don't have the strongest connection to musically or that I haven't checked out for 20, 30 years. Because the five that I'm going to tell you about, which are the main bucket list gigs, I really have a strong connection to all of those artists' music. They've written the soundtrack to my life, so that's a a huge reason why I why I put them on the list. Um, but there are certain things that should the phone ring, I would absolutely say yes to uh, sometimes from just an experience standpoint, like what would it be like? Let's see, I have... Um, I have a couple of Colombian artists on here, like Juanes and Shakira would be fun, I think, because, A, because I want <laughs> I want to speak better Spanish, and I would love to be around a, an all-Spanish-speaking crew on a massive gig like that. Plus, they are massive gigs, you know, they don't, they're not playing, uh, they're not playing like uh, the bar circuit, it's like arenas and stadiums only, so like between kind of Alejandro Sanz and Juanes and Shakira, um... You know, I'm very good friends with the guys in Mana. So if that phone call ever came, like, hey, we need a bass player or something. But already my friend Psycho played bass on half the records as well. And and, and I, I don't think Juan is going anywhere anytime soon. But, you know, just fantasizing if that would happen, you know, to really play some insane we're talking like football stadiums talking like ninety thousand people a show when they play down in mexico and we're talking like i don't know what did they do 17 nights at the forum or something last year insane numbers totally insane numbers so that kind of experience i think would be fantastic um i've been to a lot of those shows as an audience member so i know the shows are amazing and um, there's also a lane like i kind of love country music and i've also heard that country artists take care of their touring musicians perhaps better than any other genre of music out there i don't know i've just heard that from so many reliable sources right now and a lot of these gigs you know the musicians stay there for a decade or more it's like sometimes even a, a career-long gig because the artists are that loyal you know i'm talking like tim mcgraw and alan jackson and uh, you know, maybe I don't. I don't know so many country artists, but I dig the music of Tim McGraw, Alan Jackson, Luke Bryan. Um, I'm gonna do a Keith Urban song on the you know Could I Play Bass with series because um, I really dig Keith Urban. Um, there, there is so many unbelievable country artists, and I dig the music. I dig the style of playing. I dig the kind of pocket that it is. And I dig the fact that a lot of them are playing either massive arenas or even stadiums. Um, you know, some people might say, well, Taylor Swift's kind of a country artist. I don't really put her as a country artist, even though she gets touted as one sometimes. And I don't doubt that that's a, a, a phenomenal gig to do as well. She's doing, I think, only stadiums now. Um, but, yeah, one of the big big country artists would be really fun i think they work a lot as well i get that impression i've heard stories of you know 180 shows on a tour or something you know i've never done i've never done a hundred i've done 300 shows in a year before let's not fuck about i've done a lot of gigs with with single artists on tour before but i've never done it where 
it's literally 180 shows over, you know, 18 months, and it's all arenas or stadiums. So that would be an experience, you know. I've done some arenas, I've done some stadiums, but it's never like, oh, this is it every night. Like the Rolling Stones, they play stadiums every night, you know. Um, and I've opened for the Dave Matthews Band a bunch. I put that on my list. I think if Stefan uh, somehow wasn't making a couple of shows and... Uh, that would be a really fun gig to fill in on. That would, uh, yeah, I'd sub on that gig in a heartbeat. Be really fun. Massive venues, big sound, you know. <coughs> and it's a totally different thing as well. It's a totally different approach um, to playing when you're on massive stages like that. And you have to, you, you just, it, it makes you play so differently. And it's a, like a totally different skill set. It's something I did a lot for uh, for like a decade and I haven't done for a while. I probably haven't done any massive gigs like that for about eight or nine years. Um, and it's like, it is something, I de a muscle I definitely like to exercise again because it's really fun finding your, your place in a, in, a, in a venue that size and in a, in a mix that, you know, that has to go out to, you know, 40,000 people. And you have to be heard by 40,000 people. You're not playing a lot of notes, that's for, that's for sure. Um, so, yeah, th those, those kind of experiences um, would be fun. The Rolling Stones, you know, like, uh, what an what insane gig that must be to do on a regular basis. Um, some of the things I've been playing along to lately, like some of the, some of the play-along things I've been doing on the Could I Play Bass With series would, would be interesting. Um, Animals as Leaders, Pliny, um, those kind of bands. I'm. It, it's funny because like some of the music is really incredible. I don't know. Actually, almost all the music is really incredible. That's not in, in question. Um, I do question how, uh, what my threshold would be to go play um, sort of the mid-size venue thing again. You know, it'd be fun to do one of those gigs if it was like a full-on festival tour and there was like 25 summer festivals, you know, July, August, something like that, over two months, 25 festivals, that would be unbelievable. Because then you've got massive crowds and it's on. But to do sort of like the 350 to 650 cap rock venues, which are kind of grimy, and yeah, I've done a lot of that before. So I'm not sure at this point in my life what my threshold for that would be. Um, I think doing those gigs, if they were theatres, probably way nicer, way more fun, um, a little more salubrious, you know, um, maybe a little easy to manage on the road and, and a little, little easier to tolerate than the super grime of the, of the rock club vibe. So, yeah, the, well, those are all things floating through my head. Let's get to the main list. I know I, I've strung it out. I've strung you along. But I did want to put some background in there because there was, you know, obviously a little bit of background. If you are new to the podcast, you don't know who I am or what I do or what, what I've been doing these years. Um, and then, of course, all the people that are no longer around with us who would have been amazing to play with, and all those people that I moved to the U.S. because of, you know, Michael Brecker and <clears throat> Chick Corea and Wayne Shorter and all those cats. Let's get to the list. So, as of the posting of this podcast, the very last Could I Play Bass With video was a tune called Linger, 
not Lingus, Linger by uh, Jonathan Brook from an album called Steady Pull. And that would be just an absolute uh, thrill to play with her, actually. And I have a buddy, Sean Driscoll. He's, he's a gu guitar player, great guitar player. I used to play a bunch of jazz gigs with him back in the day, 20 years ago in New York. And I believe he is the guitar player with Jonathan Brook right now. So it's not like... Um, it's not like I'm so disconnected that I, you know, I couldn't make some sort of pitch for the gig. But also, I'm not pitching for the gig. I'm just saying it is a bucket list gig. And uh, I, I mentioned this in the in the um, description of the video that I posted of me playing her song that it's one of the few times in my life that I've been starstruck because she actually came to a show I was playing. I was on, on the road with Tierney Sutton, great singer, lives here in, in California. An amazing band as well with Mitch Foreman playing B3 and Peter Eskin playing drums, myself playing bass. And we played a week at the Jazz Standard. And it was, <coughs> was kind of crazy. Like a ton of people that I loved came out to that show. Steve Smith was there. Randy Brecker came out. Um, uh, Bill Milkowski, who wrote the Jacko book, came out. Um... Uh, Chris Parker, who I freaking idolized, the drummer, uh, so many people. And I believe Mitch invited her. Um, Jonathan Brooke came out. I was like, I saw her sitting there. I think it was with her husband. And I was like, and uh, I pulled Mitch aside. I said, that, 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 well, that, uh, that, that, that's Jonathan Brooke, right? He said, yeah, yeah, we've known each other for years. That's, I'm pretty sure it was Mitch. Come and meet her. I was like, holy shit. It basically, you know, I... Maybe you have this experience. Um, maybe you have had this experience in your life that uh, certain artists have sort of written the soundtrack to part of your life. And that's, um, for me, that's uh, with Ten Cent Wings and with Steady Paul and just a bunch of amazing records that, that Jonathan Brooke put out. That was a, a real soundtrack to a massive part of my, uh, of my life in the late 90s and through the 2000s and... And that music still is with me, you know, always. And I listen to it on a, on a very regular basis. I barely even needed to, like, listen to the track and learn it, really, when I when I did that song. It was so nice, just sort of flowed under the fingers because I'd listened to it so many thousands of times. Um, so Jonathan Brooke, and if we could play the whole of Steady Paul from start to finish on a gig one day, that, that would be... That'd be pretty ridiculous. Um, so I'll stop nerding out... I'll stop noting out, and because uh, that's a big. These are all big ones. I mean, these are all huge. There's it really. There's no one bigger than the other for me. These are all really important. I I spent some many days actually thinking about this. I've been wanting to do this episode of the podcast for a while, and it really took me a minute to to whittle it down to five. And it's three singers and two jazz musicians, two instrumentalists. The next one is Herbie, Herbie Hancock kind of a no-brainer right i mean you if herbie called you to play a gig you'd be like just tell me where and when and uh tell me how much you want me to pay you to do it you know it's like it's just one of those every time i'm around him or i hear him live right you you just we were uh, where were we cleveland we played the same night at the cleveland jazz festival and I ran the fuck off the stage to get over to... We were playing it. It's like this huge... <coughs> not complex, because it was kind of old building, but 
this older building in Cleveland with a bunch of theatres. Obviously, he was playing the Enormous Dome Theatre. I think there were like 3,000 people in there. I think ours was about 7.50, maybe. But I, we got off stage, I ran over there and, you know, had the nice backstage pass and everything because we were playing at the same festival and managed to sit on the side of the stage and just came out and played one chord on the piano and like life made sense it's kind of insane when somebody can do that and it was something i hadn't heard him do as well i think that was what killed me the most i was like holy shit this guy's 80 something 85 or something i've listened to i just thousands of hours of herbie hancock thousands the amounts of live recordings and bootlegs never mind all the albums i've listened to of his i and the crazy thing is i probably haven't listened to every Herbie Hancock album because there were just so many and uh, yeah so needless to say Herbie Hancock would be a total no-brainer I believe uh, well that night a few months ago whenever it was six, six months ago now was uh, who was it James Genus was playing bass and has done for a long time I uh, forget who the drummer was it's been Lionel Loeke my great friend Lionel Loeke um, on guitar for many years for like 20 years actually <laughs> and uh yeah, that would be a total no-brainer, I think. Just an, um, an amazing experience. I, 23, uh, how long ago was it? 22 years, something like long time, over two decades ago, I opened for Herbie. I didn't open, but I was playing with an artist in Germany called Chima. C-H-I-M-A. Chima. Um, who, his record label put him on the Herbie Hancock tour. So we opened for Herbie Hancock for like a month or six weeks or something in, uh, in Europe. It was amazing. So, of course, I was happy to have a gig, regardless of the Herbie thing. It was nice to be touring, and one of my best friends was playing drums, Benno Zattler, and yeah, just a, a cool situation all round, great musicians. Uh, but then we got the Herbie Hancock opening spot, and that just, you know, took everything to a whole other level. So we were playing massive venues, and just every night, you know, like uh, I remember we opened at the Columbia Halle in, uh, in Berlin. Columbia Halle, that was what it was? Yeah pretty sure it was big old barn of a place and uh well actually you know what i'm gonna look that up um columbia Halle, berlin maybe it was oh yeah it was actually three and a half thousand people yeah it was a pretty pretty big old big, oh that's right see i was just checking in because i haven't seen a photograph of that place in 22 years um Oh, yeah, it was a bit with the balcony now, I remember, yeah. Okay. Big old spot, three and a half thousand people. Boom. Yeah, all come flying back to me. I was like, do I, is, uh, the, why I'm looking it up is like, do I remember it right? Do I remember it correctly or was I just super, oh, I was super young. 22 or 23 or something. And uh, maybe it just felt like a stadium, but it was like a club. But no, three and a half thousand people. Okay. Um yeah, we opened there, we started the, the tour there, and we went all over the place. It was a super fun time. So I got to be around him. I actually got to hang out on the last night of the tour. We ended at the Alta Opa in Frankfurt, which is a kind of big classical music hall. Let's see, what is the Alta Opa Frankfurt? What does that hold? A thousand people, maybe? Let's see. Construction started in 1873. Shit, it's been around a while. Damn, seating capacity. 
2500 man we were not messing around these were big for for a jazz gig at that time these were big venues god damn yeah i remember that place as well holy shit yeah now i'm seeing wow i'm seeing pictures of these places for the first time since i played there wow yeah the alto opa actually kind of a shitty venue to play that kind of music in we were playing hip-hop and hubby was playing all this groove stuff and it didn't it wasn't great for uh for amplified music and for drums but one of the great things about that hall i'm sure now back then definitely uh was hubby's dressing room had a bunch of what felt like a bunch of pianos in it. i'm sure it was just two or something like that but it was like two grand pianos <coughs> and I had all my transcription books there, and Hobie was just cool. He'd been like, he'd stop by at a dressing room on his way past, and I'd, I'd always be like playing the piano and just working on my shit, you know, working on transcriptions. And I'll never forget this that I got to sit with him with one of my transcription books one night, the last night, the very last night at the Autopo, the last night for us. That was the last show we opened for him after the month or six weeks or whatever. And, um, we, I got to sit there and play him the solo from uh, um, Fifi Fum from uh, Wayne Shorter record. Um, is it Witch Hunt? I forget what the name of the record now. Um, and afterwards he said, <laughs> he's like, well, I said, was that me or was that McCoy? Like, he, I don't know. I really want to. I really want to believe that he was serious because he, he, in the moment, he was very serious. And I had to say, I had to like, no, you know, it's Elvin, and you, like, what the fuck, you know, like, <laughs> I had to kind of like shake him, like, don't you remember you played on this landmark record on Blue Note back in the sixties? And he was very serious. He's like, man, I just there were there were so many record dates back then, and me and McCoy were doing a lot of them, blah blah blah. And then he started talking about the time he like almost got to play with John Coltrane and McCoy wasn't making one of the nights at the village Vanguard, I guess the story goes. And he said, yeah, the whole, the whole day, like Coltrane called me and, or I forget whether Coltrane or McCoy had called him like, Hey, can you make the gig? And he said, yeah, I'm going to make the gig. And he said, I went home and I spent the whole day practicing all my McCoy Tyner licks, you know? And he was, he was telling this story to say like, why the fuck would I do that? You know, like, why wouldn't I just show up in the gig and be me? It ended up, he never did the gig. McCoy made it at the very last minute. So I think Herbie was there ready to get on stage and play. And McCoy made the gig and Herbie never ended up playing with Train live. That that was, the, as far as I remember, that was the story. He told so many incredible stories of the 60s. I guess that's just something, that's an era I'm addicted to in terms of the Miles Quintet, the classic quintet with Ron and Tony and Herbie and Wayne. So... That was a, an unbelievable experience. That was very close to being, I mean, I guess that is a bucket list experience, right? Just to spend that amount of time around a legend when you're only like 22 years old or, or whenever it was, 23 years old. Just, yeah, an, an insane amount of information uh, being laid on, laid on me every single day. Because it was just story time, you know? The whole time was just story time and Herbie holding court so yeah that's that's one of the big ones that's one of the big jazz ones um these are in no particular order but they just happens to be in the three spot is james taylor and the incredible 
I just an insane body of of songs. Again, he's another one like, um, you know, I've been listening to him longer than Jonathan Brook, um, just because. I don't know why, because that was around when I was a kid. I guess Jonathan wasn't. Um, and, uh, yeah, just really an important voice in my head. Musical voice, songwriting voice, um, incredible songs. Again, like listening to James Taylor as a kid and not, un not knowing who Carlos Vega was and um, Don Gronick and, and all of these cats like uh, Lee Sklar and Jimmy Johnson, who I guess does the gig now, right? And, yeah, just coming full circle and realizing like, oh, these are, as a musician now, these are, I, I idolize the singer and I loved the singer as a kid and the artist of, of James Taylor. And now I idolize all the people that, you know, brought that music to life in the band. So that would be a, a total uh, immediate yes. And I heard he just takes the best care and he's the nicest person. Um, like touring with James Taylor apparently is a real joy. And I think maybe that's like, maybe that's a common thread amongst these five people that I have, you know, top in my list of current bucket list gigs. Because um, in the number four spot, another jazz uh, musician um, would be Chris Potter. Big fan really big fan and uh i think it, and, and like the, these these gigs have so many that they, they, I, I would say yes to them for very different reasons like they all have something really special and really unique that's different from each other and i think playing with chris which i've never done by the way um i don't think it's out side of the realm of possibility but my phone definitely isn't ringing off the hook so it's not and i don't live in new york so there are there are definitely uh barriers in the way i'm not in that scene and in that hang anymore so um but it's not you know outside the realm of possibility that it could happen one day and as a listener as a fan as somebody who's followed his career since red rodney as a sideman and dave holland and you know traveling mercies and all of those records early on the verve stuff and uh what was the one with schofield and and dave holland and uh maybe that was traveling mercies i forget <coughs> but i've you know been listening to chris forever and um one of the first gigs i went to when i moved to new york was a chris potter gig and uh it's i think it's very could be very freeing that's the sense i get because he his sense of freedom when he plays is seems like it's limitless like he seems to be so in control and calm at the same time, uh, like ferocious as a musician, but very in control and calm at the same time. Uh, that's well, that seems like a deadly combination of, of abilities to bring to the table with that sort of depth of uh, depth of knowledge, depth of harmonic sort of appreciation. It's uh, yeah, it's it's pretty awe inspiring. So I would yeah, I would say. That would be one. And, and, and I'm not sure in which configuration either. Like, I saw some gigs that I really dug. It was like, I think it was called the Circuits Band 
although I'm not sure Tim played on the record, but I saw it live with Tim LaFave and Justin Brown and Craig Taborn um, in Holland. I saw that in Holland. We were playing the same festival, so we got to hang a little. And um, yeah, and I just saw Potter in uh, in Hong Kong. We were all hanging out in the in the lobby. Like it's it's not, we run into each other from time to time, and. Uh, and I get to hear him play, and it's it's always yeah. I always get that that sense of like total freedom. So that circus band was like really kind of late sixties, early seventies miles almost in terms of not that they were doing that, but in terms of the freedom everyone in the band seemed to have harmonically and rhythmically and melodically. Um, so maybe that would be an awesome context. Uh, within which to play, but uh, you could be trio with Eric Harlan, for instance. It would be a, would be amazing. I, I don't know. I, I I don't think there would be a shitty situation uh, in existence to do that gig. So, yeah, that would be one. And I guess the last one. And who knows? Like there have been a few people to do to do the gig um, as bass players, but it's always rough when you're. Like I said, Michelle and Degacello should probably be on this list. Um, She's a bass player, but she does have a bass player in the band sometimes. I've always been a massive... She is my favorite bass player, period. Um, always has been. Um, but yeah, the, I guess the last person... Again, no particular order, but the, the last person to round out these five people would be Sting. Talk about someone who's like from the police all the way through the solo stuff. Bring on the Night, Ten Summoners Tales, Dream of the Blue Turtle. I mean, just like everything has been, you know, brand new day even. Like, just every freaking record has been a massive, has had a massive impact on my music, on my life, and again, soundtrack to my life. Soundtrack to a massive part of my life. He's been playing music as long as I've been alive, um, and, and I've been soaking it up, you know, and just been in awe of a lot of the bands he's had. Uh, there have been some epic moments. You know, the Bring on the Night obviously is a big sort of all-star thing with Kenny Kirkland and Omar Hakim and Branford Marsalis and Dow Jones and all those cats. Um, so that was always something that... It was always something that I looked towards, like that really motivated me to be good at what I do. And but as I say it never happens. It's it's very easy to imagine that I never, uh, never play with Sting ever in my life. But the experience of going to shows, the experience of understanding and listening to and understanding and assimilating his music into my playing on some level, and uh, and on idolizing the musicians that that play with him is is huge and has been a huge part of my playing and my development as a musician so yeah there it is those are the five that um are still making music that are still around that uh it could happen i doubt it will um but those are the those are the five phone calls that would be uh answered in the in the in the affirmative very very quickly um yeah I, there's also I I think maybe I'll, I'll 
because I'm, I'm thinking of other things, of course, like it, I spent weeks thinking about this, but I knew other things were going to come to me. I know is another tricky one, like Michelle and Sting, another bass player that uses a bass player in his band is Victor Wooten, and I just have a lot of time for Victor as a human being, obviously as a musician, but being on the road with someone like that, I could see being very fun, obviously, but also very... Uh, just very like what a learning experience no matter how old you are i'm 45 i'm i'm where i am i'm not 20 anymore i'm not 80 and it doesn't matter if i was 20 or 80 or or right now it, i think it would just be a pretty incredible uh experience so yeah there are and i know i'm gonna think of more and there'll probably be more podcast episodes talking about stuff like this if it's of interest to you let me know hit me up in the comments below the video i think the COVIDness has uh, has told me that this is the limit of my of my speaking ability for the night. Um, so I'll leave you with that. Yeah, that's a lot of that's a lot of information. It's a lot of artists to think about. Um, maybe we should get your bucket list gigs going in the comments. That would be interesting to see. And uh, I guess past and present. You know, I threw people out there past and present and also people that maybe are not in my exact lane but that i think would be great experiences let me hear what yours are um and until midnight new year's eve the sale at the site will continue um on books bundles base courses hx stomp presets and um yeah, I'm not discounting the physical books. The margins are pretty slim on those, unfortunately. And the whole shipping thing is a whole new lane for me. I'm going to the post office a lot these days, which is great because the books are selling and I really appreciate that. And that, that definitely helps uh, keep, the, keep the lights on, which is very much appreciated. And like I said, massive amounts of new stock arrived today. Iconic lines, pentatonics, sight reading, giant steps... Uh, a bunch of them all i think almost all books are in stock again right now because they were mostly out so go check that stuff out it's all linked in the description of the video if you're watching on youtube if you're not just go to yannickguizdala.com and uh catch you all again on the next episode very soon later